Let's now turn for our scripture reading to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. Begin reading at verse 22 and continue to the end of the chapter. Our text this evening is verses 31 through 33, which will conclude our our study of God's word in this place concerning the relationship of husbands and wives in marriage. We'll begin with verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, our text this evening uh, in verse 31, quotes uh, Genesis 2, verse 24. You see it in italics. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And uh, these words were spoken in Genesis upon the formation of, of Eve uh, from the very body of Adam. We considered last time that the wife is her husband's own flesh and so must be nourished and cherished as the Lord does his body, the church. In other words, husbands are not simply to love their wives as they love themselves, but there's a sense in which in loving their wives, they love themselves uh, because of this one flesh union that God has established. God so calls Christians, Christian husbands, to love their own wives and Genesis chapter 2 is uh, it's foundational. It is really essential to a true understanding of marriage. It's quoted frequently in the New Testament. It's basic to an understanding of marriage as a high and holy and a unique relationship that was instituted by God himself at the beginning of creation. I've often said that... Uh, uh, God himself was the first father of the bride because we're told in Genesis that God brought her, that is, the woman, uh, to the man. He joined Adam and Eve. And uh, the references to this passage in the New Testament, particularly in, in Matthew chapter 9, make clear that uh, this was not simply a, u- a unique instance in which God joined a man and woman together, but... Uh, What is said there of Adam and Eve is true of every lawful marriage. And that's made clear by the words of our Savior who quoted this in connection with the, with the, the whole question of divorce that he was 
uh, confronted uh, with that what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. And so that's a description of every every lawful marriage as involving the activity of God in joining two people together in this one flesh union. And marriage is also the closest of every human relationship uh, according to God's word and will. Every earthly relationship, perhaps that a little, that's a little bit better, and we'll, we'll see the significance of that. And uh, that uniqueness of marriage and its closeness in, uh, in comparison to other earthly relationships. It's not simply a matter of feeling or it's not simply a matter of experience, uh, but, but it's a fact. And it is something to uh, be intentionally honored then by husbands and wives. And our text from Ephesians especially places the emphasis upon the husband, where it says, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Now, that leaving of father and mother and cleaving to one's spouse is not only true of the husband, it's true of the wife, but the emphasis here in this section of Ephesians 5 that especially focuses upon husbands and their call to love their wives, it really places the emphasis here. And we're going to then uh, consider that a bit further as we look at the fact that husbands are called to love their wives above all other earthly relations. Leave and uh, cleave is that old-fashioned word, right? Cleave. It's kind of a, uh, a covenantal word that is used even to describe the relationship of God's people to himself. Uh, in the prophecy of Jeremiah, Jeremiah was required to wear a, a belt around his waist as an illustration of the fact that God had caused all the people of Israel to cling to him, to cleave to him as their God. It's a very, very close word. You've probably heard uh, the expression that blood is thicker than water. And sometimes that is stated as if to prove that blood relationships are the closest relationships on earth above every other connection. But the fact is that husbands and wives are not related by blood. In fact, the word of God forbids that, at least any kind of close relationship by blood. Parents and their children, of course, are related by blood. But the relationship of husbands and wives is closer than that. It's described in Scripture as a one flesh union. And the relationship between uh, parents and their children is never defined in Scripture as a one flesh kind of union. And when the parent and child relationship is put first, Above the relationship of husband and wife, the consequences of that can be very, very harmful, uh, disastrous even. If husbands have a pattern of confiding in their mothers, things that they're not sharing with their wives, problem. Or if married sons are letting their dads act as if he is the head of the household, of his household, and the wife is made to feel that actually father-in-law is in charge, that's not a very good situation. Or if husbands allow financial dependence upon parents to damage a relationship with his wife. That's just another, another example in which a failure to leave, a failure to, uh, in a sense, uh, sever in terms of the closest relationship and be joined in what is in fact 
the closest relationship that causes problems. Now, this last illustration I gave doesn't uh, mean that whenever there's any kind of financial dependence upon parents that that's wrong, but it's kind of risky, and uh, it must be managed with great care uh, on both sides. Leaving father and mother and clinging to the wife means a new family unit, and that ordinarily involves a, even a physical kind of separation. Or it involves great care to set up and to keep boundaries of separation. And wise parents understand that. And uh, husbands who give godly leadership uh, will protect those boundaries. Uh, because his wife comes first. I remember years ago, my, my, um, my older brother uh, joined the Air Force. And uh, he was very young, like 20 years old. His wife was 19 years old. And uh, they soon moved away after basic training. And I remember him visiting home and saying, you know, it's really been good for us to be away from, from home. I'm thinking, well, thanks a lot, brother. I love you too. But uh, basically what he was saying, that it was good for their relationship because uh, they had to depend on each other. They had to rely on each other. And it served to strengthen their their marriage together. Husbands must put their wives before their children. I heard an illustration of this last night that I, I just have to share. I'm not going to mention any names. I don't want to embarrass anybody. Some others who were present on this occasion know what I'm talking about. But a, bro but a brother spoke of, uh, he was giving some advice to a young couple, and he explained that he and his wife together made a kind of commitment that they would always sit together in church. And that means that they wouldn't have the children in between them. And uh, that was a kind of commitment that they made and that they kept. And they, they saw that as kind of a, a visible sign of the fact that their relationship comes first. And I thought that was a, a helpful illustration and example. Now, that doesn't mean that it's a rule that if you're not following that, you're somehow bad or, or doing something wrong or that uh, uh, you're being judged by that. But it is uh, one particular way in which, in a very practical sense, the, the closeness of the relationship of husband and wife is, is practiced and displayed. Husbands must guard that. If a teenage son shows contempt for his dad, he's going to get it. To use colloquial expression, you know what I'm talking about. But if he shows contempt for his mother, he's really going to get it. Because dad has to communicate the fact that children must treat their moms with respect. And they must honor her. And he must not only set an example, but he must defend her honor in the home. What's most important for fathers? What's the most important thing they can do for their children? It's love their wives. Love their children's mother. That means no conspiring with kids against the wife. That means no complaining to the kids about the wife. That means no hint of preferring kids above the wife. This relationship comes first. The relationship of husband and wife is not only closer, but it's more permanent as far as living together and relying on each other is concerned. Well, what's typical with children in the home? Maybe 20 years, maybe a bit more is quite common. Compared to what? 50 years together? I've asked a number of times in premarital counseling, how does the young couple anticipate that having children will affect their relationship? 
just to get them thinking about that and prepare the husband for some jealousy, maybe, when he sees how much time his wife devotes to caring for the children. And it's to uh, illustrate the point that, yeah, it may affect the amount of time, certainly, but it ought not to affect the quality of their relationship. They should grow closer in the midst of that shared responsibility and activity of raising children. How is it that uh, couples can live together 25, 30 years even, raise kids together, and then find out that they can't live alone together anymore? Well, there are different explanations for that. Sometimes it's a busyness, busy lives centered around work, or even busy lives that are centered around the kids, or selfish pursuits that get between them. And their relationship is not cultivated and protected and built. The husband fails to observe the first rule of Scripture with when it comes to the husband's responsibility. It's given in Peter. Husbands, dwell with your wives. And we quickly move to the second part with understanding. Yes, they're to dwell with their wives with understanding, but they're to dwell with their wives. They're to live together in this closest of relationships. Husband, God calls husbands to love their wives above all earthly relationships. Secondly, husbands are called to love their wives in a one flesh union. Our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 19 said, Have you not read, again when this question was posed to him regarding divorce, that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And then he quotes uh, the very passage that's quoted here in Ephesians. And then he says, so then they are no longer two, but one flesh. In other words, this, uh, this matter of being one flesh is not only made clear in the quotation that our Lord gives from Genesis, but he repeats it emphatically. No longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Two. Not three, two, he made them male and female, not male and male or female and female. God instituted this one flesh union as unique within the marriage bond. And that's an intimate union then. Husbands and wives are to be joined together, joined together literally physically in sexual union. And this is God's good gift for the enjoyment and for the deepening of the marriage bond. And it's a relationship that was established, instituted by God before the entry of sin. Now, sometimes people somehow associate with the first temptation with some kind of a sexual temptation. And they somehow get the idea that sex is a result of sin. That's a distorted view. That is really a corrupted view of this good gift that God established with man in his innocency. One flesh. It's more than the physical union, but it's not less. There is a physical cleaving or clinging to one another that is, that is pleasing to God and serves a, a powerful purpose. So this one flesh union is an intimate union. And, and secondly, it's also an inviolable union. Inviolable. That describes something that must not be broken or violated. And you see, that's, that's a, that's different than something that, that cannot be broken or violated. Something 
uh, that is impossible to break or to violate. So in that sense, we do not believe that marriage is an inseparable bond, as if it's impossible to break that bond. Yes, it is possible. Jesus says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. That's a command. He doesn't say what God has joined together, man cannot separate. It can be separated. It can be broken by adultery or fornication or desertion. And these are sinful things on the part of one or perhaps both persons. And it can result, indeed, of that violation, that separation of the marriage bond with all the wreckage and sadness and harm that comes with it, that only the grace and mercy of God uh, can heal. And I say this in sympathy with those of you who have suffered, who have suffered divorce. And I say it knowing that you will agree with me that divorce is never a small thing with little consequences. It's a hard thing. It's a very, very painful thing. And I wouldn't even mention it for fear of causing pain and distress. But, uh, God calls me to teach the whole counsel of God and to, and to proclaim his word and and to protect this institution, and to protect Christians, and to protect even our society by upholding this institution that God has established. But thirdly, this one flesh union is a union of calling and purpose. Physical union without marriage, physical union without the marriage bond of promise and commitment, it doesn't rise to the one flesh union that the Bible speaks about when it defines marriage in this way. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 6, we read these words, uh, flee sexual immorality. And then, uh, verse 16 says, do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. Now, there's an interesting um, switch here, isn't there? Paul doesn't say, he who is joined to a harlot is one flesh with her. You'd think that would be the, the likely word that he would choose because he then quotes the passage of Scripture that speaks of a one flesh union. But he avoids that language. He says he's one body with her, as if that's that's kind of a distortion. That's kind of even a, a perversion of the one flesh union, because though that one flesh union indeed involves physical union, it's much more than that. And that in itself, the joining of bodies, that doesn't rise to the purpose that, that God has instituted for marriage, in which lives are joined together in an inviolable, intimate bond that involves one, one God, one, one faith, one purpose that is shared together. Think even of the formation of Eve there in the context in which we read of it in Genesis chapter 2. It's in the context of man's calling to serve God. God had placed man in a position of dominion over creation. He was given a task to exercise that, that task. And he is busy doing it as he names the animals. God brings the animals before him and, and Adam names all the animals. But it's in the process of serving God in this task that's been given to him that he also discovers his uh, isolation. He saw the animals pass before him in pairs, multiples, 
And he is confronted with the fact of his own loneliness. Not good. In Genesis 1, we read again and again, good, 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 very good, not good. Not good that man should be alone. And uh, God gave him this specific task to confront him with that and to experience it and feel it deeply so that he would appreciate God's rich grace and provision and providing for him a helper comparable to him so that together they might serve and glorify God as a unit, you might say. The one flesh union is a male-female unity. You might say it's a male-female unit in God's image for glorifying God together. Another passage that that, uh, makes that clear is in, in the book of Malachi. In the second chapter, the God has a a case against his people, and he spells it out. Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. We considered that significance uh, of that before. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Why one? Simply so that they might have children? Well, yes, having children is involved, but not just having children. God made them one so that his purpose for godly offspring might be fulfilled as they together serve him, seek his kingdom, give priority to what comes first so that their children might be raised in the ways of the Lord. So this one flesh union is an intimate union. It's an inviolable union. And it's a union of calling and purpose to glorify God together. And so husbands are to love their wives and honor and respect them as companions. You know, in the form for marriage, that's placed first. The first reason uh, for marriage is not even having children. It's for companionship. They might glorify God together. And then thirdly, husbands are called to love their wives in a genuine reflection of Christ and his church. Verse 32 of our text again roots this teaching in Christ. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Uh, There are mysteries about marriage. Married people might be able to talk about them at length. There is a mystery to the power of this, of this union. There are mysteries to the way that God sanctifies his children through the joys and sorrows, the pains and the pleasures of this union. There's mystery to the ways in which God advances his kingdom. Mystery in the way he binds two souls together in a way that makes People feel it sometimes, even when separated or apart. But the greatest mystery that Paul is talking about here is really the foundation for it all. And that is God's love in Christ. I speak concerning Christ and the church. We heard how Paul had uh, previously spoken of this mystery in uh, the third chapter. A mystery, you understand, in Paul's usage of it here is not some mystical, esoteric, inside knowledge that only a few initiated people can somehow achieve. But the word mystery refers to what was previously unknown and hidden, but has now been revealed. And that is the amazing purpose of God, to save for himself a church 
a church made up of people from all nations, not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles. And for this, God fulfilled his covenant promise by sending his own beloved son, who willingly came into this world, you might say, who came into this world to obtain a bride for himself, and to obtain a bride for himself by dying for her. The unsearchable riches of Christ is how Paul describes this mystery. A love that surpasses all uh, understanding in terms of the width and the breadth, the, the depth, the length, the height of this love. It concerns God's working exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. It's a participation in a mystery that single people or divorced or widowed people share as well. The knowledge of this ultimate love story that is the true and only foundation for their security and their happiness in life so that they don't idolize their spouses and make a god of them or be destroyed by them, but rather Christ is the husband of every man and every woman in this profound spiritual sense of belonging to this church of Jesus Christ, whom he loved, for whom he gave himself, whom he is sanctifying to present without spot or blemish before him. From this mystery, Paul, in effect, says, learn to reflect such love. And verse 33 teaches that it can be done. We might say somewhat, right? It's kind of interesting. I don't know how it strikes you, but it's uh, it's like Paul has to come back down to earth he can't get away from the real message of the centrality of Christ and his teaching about marriage, this wonderful mystery of Christ and the church. But he's got to kind of bring it back around. And so he says, nevertheless, yeah, I'm really talking about this greater mystery, but nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It teaches that this can be done somewhat. It's only a brief summary here that concludes this section. No need to repeat in detail what was already elaborated more fully. But you might say that Paul, by returning down to earth, is saying, in effect, don't let the loftiness of the pattern of Christ's love for his church so overwhelm you, husbands, that you just despair of imitation. Say, I can't do that. But rather let each of you seek to genuinely practice it. Oh, yeah, it'll always be very, very imperfect. It'll never measure up to this standard, truly and fully. But nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And in this way, husbands and wives can live as heirs of the grace of life together, together depending upon the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and serving him and their calling during this short pilgrimage, during these few years on earth, until all God's people will enter that state in which uh, there is neither marriage. People neither marry nor are given in marriage. This earthly relationship is, is but temporal. It's but an earthly dim figure of the relationship of Christ and his church, that eternal relationship. And in the meantime, we can pursue these lofty goals until we enter the fullness of the knowledge and experience of this ultimate mystery of God's love for his bride 
and the purification, the sanctification of this people for whom he died. Amen.